Chapel, Mason City. Amen. First Peter, chapter one. Today, First Peter was Hebrews, James, First Peter, Second Peter. If you've gone to Revelation or Jude, you've gone too far. Almost to the end of the New Testament. So again, welcome this morning to Calvary Chapel. We're thrilled that you're here. We love the Bible at Calvary Chapel. We esteem the Word of God, and we believe and receive it that it is the words of God, and so we study it with that sort of attention, with that sort of love and reverence. Super glad that you're here with us for our study. Today's message is going to deal with the subject of suffering, more specifically how to find hope in times of suffering. In this world of so many individuals, so many divisions, there are a few things that we all have in common. One of them is suffering. At some point or another, all of us will experience hardship and difficulty of some kind or another. Some people less than others. You know, you look at some people's lives and, and you'd say, wow, it doesn't seem like they ever suffer. But it is common to the whole human experience at some time Somebody, you know, everybody will suffer, whether it would be with an illness, the death of a loved one, uh, the loss of something important. Where did suffering come from? Well, it originated from the human rebellion against God that took place in the Garden of Eden. Um, you look at this world, you say, why are things broken like this? Why do people hurt? Why do things happen? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, our spiritual ancestors. And uh, when they rebelled against God, sin and death and problems came into the universe. And uh, the Bible does foretell of a future where God will restore uh, things to a state where there is no pain, there is no suffering. And we look forward to that today. But in the meantime, we will face trials and difficulties. Now, in times of suffering, hope becomes crucial. I was reading an article on the Harvard School of Medicine website, uh, and it outlines the benefits of hope. And in this article, it was saying hope is essential for things such as well-being, protection from depression, anxiety, suicide. It gives a sense of purpose and comfort. However, when I scanned this article thoroughly, not once does it tell us where to place our hope. <laughs> Told us all the benefits, warned us about false hopes, but not one place did it list or give any place to put your hope. What should I hope in? And as helpful as things like psychology and medicine may be, or philosophy, these things offer no hope beyond this life. And as Paul says, if our hope is in this life only, we're to be pitied above everybody else. He says, we might as well just eat and drink and live because tomorrow we die. The world has nothing to offer where it comes to hope in an eternal sense. The only things that the world has to offer to hope in are perishing. And when you put your hope into those things, you realize daily that your hope is diminishing as the thing that you're hoping in is diminishing. The world has nothing to offer in this area. I have a problem with kind of overstating my case, you know. But this is the truth. Worldly sources of hope, politics. If I can just get my right guy in the office, things are going to be great. Well, could change. Your health. Oh, I hope if I just get this diet under control, I get to the gym every day. And, you know, those things are good. But eventually it's going to fail. 
Relationships. Oh, I hope in this relationship, if I could just get the right relationship, if I could just get the right girlfriend, the right boyfriend, everything will be fine then. Well, they could cheat. Even if you marry them, eventually they'll die. I mean, this is the reality of living in a fallen, broken world. The hope in self-discovery. If I can just get figured out what my identity is, am I a girl, am I a boy? I don't know what I am. If I can just get this figured out, then everything will be great. Doesn't seem like that's working for people. Hope in wealth. You can wake up like 2008 and, uh, you know, the market crash, you don't have any money. Hope in popularity. That only lasts until you become unpopular. <laughs> Hope in being liked on social media. Tough life to maintain. Everything in this created world is temporary, offering no hope beyond the grave. What we need is a greater, eternal, unchanging, living hope. And that's just what Peter talks about in this letter. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1, if you would, please. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So his solution throughout this letter how do you have hope in times of suffering is our salvation, the present realities of it, and the future inheritance that's guaranteed to us. That's how Peter uh, says that we need to find hope as Christians. Studying his letter helps us to connect our theology to real-life experiences, which I really appreciate. I like it when somebody can connect these things that we know about God to how we live, and that's exactly what Peter does in this letter, how to thrive spiritually in a fallen, broken, pagan world, even in times of suffering. Today's message is pretty simple here. There's four parts to it. You'll notice on the screen there's an outline. Number one, who wrote it? Talking about the letter of Peter. So we're just kind of going to do a little introduction to it and get into the first two verses. So who wrote it? To whom it was written? How are they described? How Peter greets them? Here's kind of the main point. I'll just give it to you. It's kind of wordy, but let me just give it to you just ahead of time so you'll know where we're going. We find hope in suffering because we know that God has prepared heaven for us as our forever home. We know that he is the one who initiated, provided, and chose us for salvation. And we know that he relates to us on the basis of his grace and that he gives us peace. That's a mouthful for one sentence right there, right? But we're going to take these things apart as we go through. So here we go. Who wrote it? Father, bless this study. We ask in your son's name. Amen. He says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this Peter? Let's talk about him for a little bit. He's, he wrote this letter around 65 to 67 AD. He's one of the original 12 apostles. Now, the early Christians would know exactly who Peter is. Um, he is an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He he was close friends with Jesus. He lived with him. He hung out with him. Some of the critics of the Bible sometimes, they say, those books were written in about, you know, 300, 400 AD, and nobody even knows who the real Jesus was. That's not true. This book was written between 65 and 67 AD by a guy that knew Jesus personally. So when you read the book of Peter, you're reading the writing that comes from a guy that hung out with Jesus. He knows him. He was an eyewitness. He was the most mentioned apostle in the New Testament. Unfortunately, a lot of times he's being corrected <laughs> by Jesus. You know, Peter, what are you doing? You know, he was a hardworking fisherman from Galilee. That's just, he lived around the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. 
He was an ordinary guy chosen for an extraordinary task. I love that. Jesus chose a lot of ordinary people for extraordinary things. And that's the case with Peter. He was just a working class, hardworking guy that spent a lot of time out on the water and uh, pulling in the fish and feeding his family. And he didn't go to the, the seminaries. He didn't go to the Bible colleges and those things. He wasn't a trained, he didn't grow up, you know, following a rabbi around. Um, but Jesus chose this guy, right? You know, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, not many wise are chosen, not many strong. He says, but God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to confound the strong, right? And so that's kind of an encouragement to you here today. Sometimes you've been thinking, I'd like to serve the Lord, but I mean, who am I? Well, you might just be an ordinary person that Jesus wants to call to an extraordinary thing. Some well-known facts about Peter. He walked on water, remember, to meet Jesus. He gets out of the boat, and then he starts doubting. He takes his eyes off Christ. He goes in the water. And then he gives the shortest prayer in the Bible. Help me! <laughs> Love that prayer. I use that one a lot. <laughs> Help, Lord! Uh, remember, he was at the transfiguration up on the mountain with uh, James and John, saw Jesus in his glory with Moses and Elijah talking there. Remember, he says, we should build an apartments right here. <laughs> I think we should develop this place. Let's stay up here. To heck with all those other disciples down there. Let's just stay here. And remember, God had to interrupt him. No, look at Jesus and only him. In other words, be quiet, Peter. <laughs> you talk too much, guy. He's the only one that uh, declared Jesus, or he was the one that declared Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember when Jesus says, who do people say I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say the prophet. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven did. And then remember, he goes on after that, and he says, Jesus, you know, and Jesus goes, the Son of Man's going to have to go to the cross, and he's going to be crucified. And Jesus is telling his disciples about this, right? And Peter goes to Jesus and says, hey, let me pull you aside real quick. And he takes Jesus aside, and then he tries to give him a lesson. He goes, Jesus, you know, far be it from you. You won't go to the cross, <laughs> whatever that. And, and then uh, Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Man, what a day. <laughs> he just gets commended for, you know, recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. And then, you know, minutes later, he gets called Satan. <laughs> like, that's a tough day in ministry right there. <laughs> Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they're coming to get Jesus? And Peter, loyal as the day is long, he thinks he needs to defend Jesus, and he takes out his sword, and he lops off Malchus's ear, remember? And then Jesus says, man, put your sword away. Don't you know what, what you're doing here? And then he takes Malchus's ear and puts it back on. Can't wait to meet Malchus in heaven. Dude, what happened to your... I mean, did that hurt? That must have killed. When he put it back on, did it still hurt? I mean, whoa! He was one of the first people to see the empty tomb after the resurrection. Remember that? Peter, there, we could say like 30 more things about him. Do a word study on the word Peter and Simon, you know, in the Bible, and just look at how many places Peter shows up in the Bible. It's a really fun thing to do. That's a little bit of homework for you this week. Just look up every occasion of the word Peter uh, in the New Testament and see what you come up with. His name, remember his name was Simon, but then when Jesus called him to ministry, he changed his name uh, to Peter. And Peter means stone or rock. And it's kind of prophetic because when Jesus, when Peter declared that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, he says, you know, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Jesus said, on you I will build 
my church. But he's not talking about on Peter. He's talking about on this confession that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ. And the church is built upon that. And so this was kind of prophetic when Jesus changed his name to Peter or Stone because he would become a foundation of the first church. He was an apostle. It's interesting, though, that he gets called Stone because he was kind of wishy-washy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of nice. I guess Jesus sees the best in him. He says, you're like a rock, man. And then, like, he's all wavery, <laughs> you know? Turn over to Matthew for a second, chapter 26, please. Matthew 26. I'm going to talk about a few things. Uh, we're just going to kind of breeze through some scriptures, but if you can't turn there, that's okay. I'm just going to read it. Matthew 26. Peter had some pretty big failures, and I'm just going to talk about one of them today. Have you ever blown it so bad that you were just convinced that God would be done with you? I mean, has anybody ever experienced that here? You've just blown it so bad where you're like, I think that he's, he's probably fed up by this point. He doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. Well, me too. But I get encouraged by Peter. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside the courtyard. This is the night of Jesus' crucifixion. And a servant girl came to him saying, you also were here uh, with, or you were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying, right? Because the, the heat is on, right? Jesus is getting crucified. So now everybody's questioning his disciples. And, and this girl comes up to him and you were with Jesus. He says, I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you're one of them for your speech betrays you. He had a Galilean accent. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And uh, Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. See, right before this, Jesus goes to Peter and he says, all of you are going to deny me tonight. You're all going to flee. And then Peter goes, I will never do that, even if I have to die with you. And he turns around later and he denies Jesus three times in the same night. Now, can anybody relate with this? You say, I am going to follow the Lord. I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm going to follow the Lord with everything I have. And then you mess up. And you say, you know, I think I was a little overconfident. I think I don't realize how weak my flesh is. Make these great promises to the Lord and fail. I sure know what that's like. So Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected. Peter went out and wept bitterly that night. So now Jesus in his resurrected state. Turn to John chapter 21, please. I just love this. I'm kind of laboring this point here because I'm so encouraged by Peter. If I didn't understand the grace and mercy of God, I would have quit serving the Lord so long ago. If I didn't understand that he's a God of mercy and restoration and forgiveness. And maybe that's just the exact thing you need to hear today. Maybe just under the weight of your sin. And you're thinking, God can't do anything with me. He's done with me. You say, I, you know, you people in this room, if you only knew who I really am, if you really know who I am behind closed doors, you would understand why I think God can't use me. Well, Peter blew it pretty big time right there. He denied Jesus. He denied he even knew him. 
three times. John 21, verse 15. Now Jesus had been crucified, buried, resurrected, and he'd been appearing to his apostles, his disciples. And then the purpose of this section right here is to show how Jesus now restores Peter back into ministry. So when they had eaten breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, by the way, that's Peter's dad's name, Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? The word that he uses for love there is agape love, total commitment, total self-sacrificing, total commitment. Jesus says, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word for love right there is the word phileo. It's a different type of love. It's a brotherly love. It's lesser a degree of love. Jesus says, do you agape me? He says, you know I phileo you. I love you with a brotherly love. It's interesting. When you read the Greek here, you see what this is talking about. He says, you know that I have brotherly love for you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? Do you love me with everything you have unconditionally? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have brotherly love for you. Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Jesus came down now to this type of brotherly love. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo, do you have brotherly love for me? Okay, you're, you're telling me, Peter, you don't have agape, but you have phileo, you have brotherly love for me. Okay. Peter's grieved about that because he knows Jesus has come from this agape down to phileo. He said, Lord, you know all the things. You know that I love you, brotherly love. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, follow me. There's a lot to be said in here, but it's interesting that at this point of Peter's life, it's like he has more of a realistic view of himself. And he's being humble before Jesus. But Peter is restored into ministry. And Jesus says, that's okay. You have brotherly love for me. You don't have agape love for me. That's fine. Get back into ministry. Be useful to me again. It's a beautiful thing. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that this morning, but God's the God that restores people. He's a God of restoration. That's what he's into. Peter's death... Tradition tells us that he was martyred for his faith. The Bible doesn't say clearly how he died. Um, tradition says that he was in Rome and that he was fleeing Rome because the persecution heated, you know, was heating up and then he ran into Jesus. Jesus made an appearance to him and said, where are you going? And he goes, oh, I'm fleeing. And he felt really ashamed. And so he goes back to Rome and he's crucified upside down. In fact, I brought an image. Uh, that's, it's, you know, somebody painted this picture. You notice Peter there being nailed to a cross, but it's interesting the way he's being nailed to the cross is he, tradition has it, he begged that he would be crucified upside down because he, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified up, right side up like my Lord. 
Tradition tells us that he had a wife named Concordia, or Perpetua was her other name, and she was crucified in front of Peter, and he was made to watch. And he encouraged her through his tears and said, uh, remember the Lord. He's quoted for saying that while he watched his wife uh, be nailed to a cross. Peter stands as a powerful example of an ordinary guy called to an extraordinary task, a guy that was impulsive, overestimated his spiritual strength, he made terrible mistakes, but a guy that was restored to an incredibly important position in the church. If you've bombed it as a Christian, you think you're unusable by God, look at Peter, think of it, denying Jesus three times, all the things he got in trouble for, and yet Jesus restores him. It is God's desire to restore people to relationship with him. All, all humans have sinned. They've fallen short of the glory of God. So he sends his son, Jesus, to die on a cross, removing the penalty of sin, and he does this to restore our relationship with him. God is a God that wants to restore people. You need to understand that here today, that there's nothing that you've done in your life that makes God, uh, you know, withhold forgiveness from you. There's nothing that you've done. You might say, I don't know, I've done a whole bunch of stuff. There's nothing that you've done that closes God's arms of forgiveness to you. Amen. He wants to forgive and restore you. This is who he is. Now, to whom it was written, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 there still, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those are provinces in modern-day Asia Minor. I believe there's a uh, map on the screen. You can kind of get the idea of where that is. Um, you know, to the left over here is, you know, you would get into Italy, or, you know, Greece and Italy over that way. So you can kind of get an idea of where it is. Where he says the word pilgrims, uh, what the idea of pilgrim is, is somebody that has temporarily settled down in a land that's not their own. And it has the idea of, you know, being settled down in, in a pagan land. You're not at home. And they're just, they're on a pilgrimage. They're just passing through. You remember in the Old Testament when the Israelites were sprung from captivity uh, in Egypt? And then they were pilgrims. They were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And Peter picks up on that same idea. And he calls these Christians pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, the idea is he's writing to Christians that had been dispersed around this area. Uh, the word dispersed in the Greek has to do with like scattering seed. These Christians had been scattered out like seed all around this area because the persecution in Rome uh, was really heating up against the Christians. And so uh, he calls them pilgrims. Now, this is something that's incredibly important. Remember, we're talking about hope in times of suffering. One thing that is so important in a time of suffering is to remember that you're a pilgrim, that this earth is not your home. Remember that Crowder song, this dirt is not my home, this dirt. Yeah, I mean, he's got a good point. It's a good thing to remember that this earth is a temporary situation. You're passing through. The things that you get so wrapped up in here, the things that we get so wrapped up in and we get so burdened with, they're temporary. We need to remember that this isn't our home. God made a forever home in heaven for us, and we're just passing through here. And he's got a purpose for us while we're here. One of the main purposes is he wants to use you to bring as many people along into heaven as he can get. That's what he wants. But you're just passing through, right? So a lot of the suffering that we go through in life 
has to do with us being really too fixated on temporal things. Somehow we expect that it's supposed to just be like heaven here. Friend, if this is the only heaven that you're going to experience, that's a bad state to be in. For the Christian, this is the only hell that you'll ever know. And we look forward to that. It's important to remember that you are a pilgrim on your way to heaven. Now, let me talk a little bit about why these Christians were dispersed, okay? There's a picture I uh, brought along for this, too. In 64 AD, some of you that, you know, you're familiar with this, the city of Rome went up in flames. It's called the Great, you know, the Great Fire of Rome, 64 AD. So the fires burnt for six days. They were brought under control, then they ignited, burned again for another three days. It said 70% of Rome was burnt down. Why did this happen? Well, the leader at the time, uh, according to Tacitus, uh, the emperor, Nero at the time. Um, he was an industrious guy. He liked to build building projects. And Rome, there wasn't any room to build. So, you know, got to clear some room. <laughs> and uh, fire got out of control. And uh, so what did he do? He blamed the Christians. And uh, there were rumors going around, you know, Christians are cannibals, right? Because of communion, you know, you got to eat the flesh and drink the blood. And all these bad things, all, at, at, at this time up until then, Christianity was like, a, as far as they thought, it was a sect of Judaism. So it was a legal sort of religion, but it became illegal. Nero took all the heat off of himself and he put it on the Christians. Now, there's another picture that I'd like to show you. This Nero was known for, um, this painting is called... Uh, Candlesticks of Christianity. Uh, have you ever heard of it? So this Nero was known for, you can't really see the picture very well, but over on the right-hand side, there's a line of Christians that are kind of strung up like tiki torches in his yard, and he's having a party. And what, Christian, uh, what Nero would do is he would burn Christians uh, as torches, uh, you know, to light up his party, and everybody would just party away. And, you know, he was known for throwing them to the lions and stuff like that too. And, you know, but... Uh, Brutal guy, but this is what was going on. So you see the Christians now were dispersed. <laughs> they got out of there. And so Peter, in this letter, he's writing to these people. This is to whom the letter is written, to these pilgrims that needed to be reminded that, yeah, you've been scattered all over, and there's pagans all around you. There's people that, you know, violent people all around you. There's a violent government all around you. But what you need to remember and keep your eyes on is this is not your home. And that's the purpose of his writing, is to encourage them. That picture from 1876, it's also called Nero's Torches or Candlesticks of Christianity. You could maybe buy a print and frame that and put that in your living room if you wanted to. I don't know. Well, it's not very pleasant, is it? What do we learn about suffering here? I have to drive this home. This is not your home. Remember that. When a time of suffering comes, you just get this in your mind. This isn't it. <laughs> When I was 14, I got in some trouble. I got sent to a place called Clorinda Academy. But first of all, I went to a place called Eldora. And when I was in Eldora, I was there for 30 days. And they said, you're going to get to go home in 30 days. And I said, well, I can manage that. And I uh, went to court. And when I went to court, they said, you're not going home. You're going to Clorinda Academy for 13 months. And I was like, oh, my goodness, really? I was 14, you know. And so in Clarinda Academy, I used to sit there and look at my watch and literally count the second hands. I have such impeccable rhythm now because I just, you know, you know, I mean, I, could, I woke up one second before my alarm went off today. I mean, it's that ingrained. I used to sit and count, but I'd look at pictures of home. Also, I'd remind myself 
that this is temporary and you need to do that same thing. You need to remind yourself that this is not your home, this is temporary. Gives you perspective, lets you know that these are temporary trials, gives you eternal focus, spiritual strength, hope in the future. We find hope in suffering because we know that God has prepared heaven as our forever home. Now, how are these people described, number three of our outline? Peter says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a lot to be said right there. Did you notice the Trinity? God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. All in the same verse there, Peter just uses that effortlessly. And that's how you find the Trinity throughout most of the Bible. The Bible doesn't ever declare that God is a Trinity in those blatant terms like that. But what you see is God displayed as a Trinity in verses like this all over uh, the place. When he says elect, he means simply chosen by God. When it came time to play dodgeball as a kid or kickball or anything athletic, well, I played guitar. So... People didn't pick me. <laughs> and eventually you'd get selected, you know. But this has the idea of being selected on purpose. He's reminding these suffering Christians, he's saying, look, I know times are tough, but what you need to know is you are elect. God picked you for salvation. Man, this ministers to you if you really let this get into your heart. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, God just knows absolutely everything. God knows every outcome of every single thing. He knows everything at all times. He can't learn anything because he knows everything. And with all of that knowledge, he chose to pick you to be saved. He chose to pick me to be saved. You think about that. Think about the last time that you were really in some suffering. And you start to think, you know, this, I don't understand. Has God abandoned me? Has, you know, what is going on? Am I not valuable to God? You need to remember, well, God in his wisdom, he chose me to be his son, his daughter. That's very powerful. Sometimes the world, you suffer because of the way people treat you in this world, and, and that's legitimate. Sometimes, you know, we're all broken people. We all hurt people. But in those times where you're suffering, you say, well, you know, even though everybody else forsakes me, even my own father and mother, whatever it would be, he chose me deliberately. He wanted me. Sometimes we suffer under the weight of our sin, our guilt. We can't believe the things that we've done. God chose you, knowing everything that you would do or not do. Isn't that powerful? You say, how does theology connect to my everyday life? Powerfully, that's how it does. When you remember these things and when you live on these things, you stand in these truths. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the spirit. The word sanctification, the root word just means holy. It means being set apart. So God in his wisdom chose you in sanctification, meaning that he chose you to set you apart from sin and death and worldliness. You're no longer like this world. He set you apart by his spirit, right? And it says... In sanctification of the Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit did when, when you were first saved. The book of Titus says that he washed us, he regenerated us, the Holy Spirit. He set you apart from sin and death, brought you into his kingdom for obedience. Notice that. Christians have been chosen by God before the foundation of the universe, set apart from worldliness, sin, and death to be obedient and sensitive to God's word. Now, I'd like to issue a warning. 
that when someone doesn't seem to be very set apart from sin and worldliness and doesn't seem to be very responsive to the Word of God, there isn't really any reason they should believe that they are elect. No. The evidence of election is a life that is set apart from sin and sensitive to the Word of God. Doesn't mean you don't ever sin. That's what the next part is about here, where it says sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Here Peter connects the New Testament to the Old Testament like he did when he was talking about the pilgrim and dispersion language. So if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember when God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. Do you guys remember this? Moses gets before the people and he reads the whole law of God and he says, you know, are you going to obey this? And they say, we'll obey everything in the law, you know, at Mount Sinai, paraphrasing. And then he sprinkles some blood from the sacrifice on the people. He's making a covenant with them. Okay. So Peter's kind of picking up on this language and he's talking about the blood that has been sprinkled in a sense on Christians, Christ's blood. This is the way that he's talking about these Christians. They've been elected by God. They've been set apart from sin and death by the Spirit. They're obedient, and they're forgiven of all of their sins because of the blood of Christ. They're in covenant relationship with God because of the blood of Christ. That's exactly what we celebrated here today when, when Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. We're in this covenant relationship, and the blood of Christ is what ratifies that covenant, that agreement. It's all based in him. And that's what he's getting at here. This symbolism, it declares that Christ's death satisfies God's justice and makes atonement for our sins. The blood of Christ sprinkled on us marks our acceptance because the penalty of sin has been paid. That's another thing that really ministers to me when I'm in a time of suffering, is I say, I know that I'm forgiven by God, not because I behave really well and not because I, you know, go to church and do churchy stuff. That's not why God forgives me. I'm forgiven because of the blood of Christ. And that, that really comforts a person when they're going through a time of trial. Sometimes when you go through a time of trial, you think, I, I wonder if it's like God's punishing me because I'm a, you know, I'm a bad person. And it is true that God will chastise his children when they're in sin. If you're living in sin, yes, God will chastise you. But not all suffering is because of somebody's sin. And so it's very helpful to remember how you're forgiven. You're forgiven by the grace of God, covered by the blood of Christ. Beautiful. How does the fact that God elected and initiated and, and he's the one that called you to salvation, how does that minister to us in a time of suffering? Well, if he originated salvation, he called me to it, he elected me, he chose me for it, that reminds me that he's sovereign. It reminds me that there must be a purpose in the suffering that I'm going through. When you go through a trial, you say, well, God's either going to give me the grace to get out of this or he's going to give me the grace to sustain in it, one or the other. I know God is in control. He called me to his salvation. He called me to Christ. I know he's in control. I know I'm here for a reason. I know if he chose me, I'm here for a reason. Some of you young people, you think, well, what's the, what the heck? What am I here for? I have no purpose in life. They tell you at school that you evolved from, uh, you know, monkeys, and they eventually evolved just from cells mutating as an accident, which is, you know, 
not true whatsoever, but you think about the effect of that when they tell, uh, you know, people that in school is eventually you say, what are you? What, what is life all about? Who are you? What is the meaning of life? You say, well, I, there isn't really one because, you know, I'm just an accidental, you know, series of cells dividing and, and you know, I came from monkeys and my life doesn't really have a point, you know? And it's like, that's pretty grim. But the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us that God created you uh, fearfully and wonderfully with a purpose and that he selected you to be saved and to know him. And so you, re you remind yourself of that in a time of suffering. You say, I'm going through some really hard stuff. Well, one thing that you don't need to compound upon your suffering is maybe the thought that your life is meaningless and that you, you know, have no purpose, you know. This tells you that you have a purpose. God called you. Very powerful stuff. It's a whole bunch of things that when you're suffering, you remind yourself that you were selected by God. Now the last point here. Let's wrap this up quickly. How they are greeted... Verse 2 says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, these are beautiful greetings. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards the sinner. Unmerited favor. So Christians greet one another like that. They say, grace to you. And that's a reminder that even though you don't deserve it, God has given it. He's given you salvation. He's given you his son. And God relates to you on the basis of your grace, not on your works. That's really comforting. If God related to me based on my works, I would be grieved because my works are inconsistent at best. I can be a nice guy for about a couple hours. Something happens, lose my cool. I'm a mess. So I'm so grateful that God extends grace to me, a gift to me, and that I relate to him based on his grace, not upon my merit. That tells me it's not about earning or deserving or meriting. It's about him extending pity and mercy to me. Love that. He says, grace and peace to you. Now, peace here has to do with the supernatural tranquility that being rightly related to God will bring into your life, will bring into your soul. You ever met a Christian, certain Christians where it's like life looks like it's falling apart from, you know, things are just falling apart around them, but they're at peace? It's because God puts that peace, the peace that passes understanding into their heart. And so he greets them by saying grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. It's a good thing to really have our hearts fixed on because, you know, suffering is, is going to come into our lives. And I'm going to tell you, I'll close with this. I'm sorry we're a couple minutes over. I used to kind of worry about things like, well, I'll be honest with you, okay? Like, when I, right when I got my dog, like, I love my dog, but he's old, and uh, it's sad. But even right when I first got him, I used to get these thoughts of like, man, I'm going to miss this guy when he's gone. I mean, like 10 years ago, like right after I got him, I used to get things, thoughts like that. And he's all old now, and his face is all white, and he can't hardly jump up on the bed anymore. He's a golden retriever. He's a sweet fella. And I get these thoughts sometimes, like, I'm going to miss him when he's gone. And I got that same thought about my grandma, you know. My grandma just passed recently. She's the closest woman to me in my life. I, I love her dearly. And she's with the Lord. I got to hand her off to the Lord. I got to just, like, I, had, I was holding her hand, and I had my hand on her back, and I literally got to hand her off to the Lord, and I, Jesus just came and, and just took her uh, right out, and she took her last breath. And, you know, sometimes these thoughts, they come into our lives, and we, and we say, well, what am I going to do? Or how am I going to get through it when, I, when my when my mom dies, you know? How am I going to get through it when maybe I have a girlfriend or something and she dies? 
How am I going to get through these things in life? I just want you to remember God's grace. Because God, when I was with my grandmother, I noticed in that moment that he gave her grace for the moment that she was in. And she didn't fear. And I was sitting there with my wife, and, and Aaron was a little freaked out by the whole thing because, you know, when somebody's gasping for their last breaths, it's like you want to try to help them, and, and you can't. There's nothing you can do. It's, it's tough, you know. But I will tell you that Christ, in that room, he put grace upon grace upon every heart in that room. And so these things that we walk around and we fear, and sometimes we suffer because we're fearing things and we're thinking about outcomes and we're thinking about what will happen if this happens and that happens. Let me assure you today, God will give you grace for that moment in that moment. And you can rest in that. When he says grace and peace, that's a really powerful thing that he's saying to us today. God will give you grace in your suffering. How will I face my own death? God will give me grace in that moment. He'll give me grace in that season of life. So I can live now. I can live. I can live for him. These Christians running. <laughs> Let's get out of here. They're burning my cousin as a candle. How could you comfort them? How could you comfort people going through stuff like this? You say, you remember God's a God of restoration. Remember Peter? He loves you. He chose you. This dirt is not your home. And he'll give you grace for the moment. If you've never come into a relationship with Christ here today, it's very simple in a sense because really he's done all the work. What you need to do, what I need to do, I've already done it, but if you've never come into a relationship with Christ, what you do is you just, in the quiet part of your heart, you just get with him or, or speak it out loud, and you, and you say, listen, I realize that I've broken your laws. God, I've, I've sinned, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've fallen short of your glory. I've, I've broken every single commandment that there is, maybe not in action, but in, in my heart some way or another. And so I acknowledge, God, that what you say about me is correct. But I also acknowledge, God, that you say you love me and you sent your son to die for me and that you'll forgive me of my sins because you are a God that wants to restore a relationship with me. And so our sin separates us from God. The Bible says, the arm of the Lord is not short that he cannot save, but in Isaiah, but he says, it's your sin that separates you from God. So there has to be something done about this sin. And you can't do anything about it. You can't just start being really good from this moment on because that doesn't clear up your past sin. It doesn't, it doesn't take that away. And even if you try to be really good right now, I mean, you can't ever slip up one time. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's impossible. You can't be perfect. People will often say, I'm not perfect. I know, that's why you need to be represented by somebody that is perfect. And God knows you can't save yourself. He knows there's nothing you can do about your sin. And so what he did was he sent his son. He manifested himself in the flesh. He came to this earth. He entered into his creation to live the life that you could never live, live the perfect life you could never live. 
being perfectly obedient to God's laws, doing all the right things, not doing the things he shouldn't do, and, and doing the things that, that we should. And he, he lived, he earned that perfect record through his life. And then at the end of his life, it culminated as him being crucified. And when he was crucified on the cross, what he was doing was he was dying in the place of sinners. When Jesus Christ was, was dying, when the nails were being driven through his wrists and his ankles, he was dying the death that you and I are supposed to die. He's dying as a substitute. He died in our place. It was his innocent blood shed for the guilty sinner. And so the way that you get saved, the way that you come to Jesus, the way that you come to God, the way that this sin problem is taken care of is you simply trust what God has done through his son at the cross. You say, look, I recognize I'm a sinner. I get that. I've done things I shouldn't do and I've not done the things I should do. But I understand that Jesus lived the perfect life I could never live and he died the death that I deserve. And I put my trust in him. And, I, and when I put my trust in him, God the Father looks and he sees, he sees that trust. And he says, I'm going to account that as righteousness. By trusting in Jesus, God the Father says, because you trust in my son, I'll forgive you of your sins. Everything that you've ever done, past, present, the sin that's coming in the future, all of that taken care of at the cross. It's your job, you're part of it. The only thing that you bring to it is just your trust. That's all he wants is he just wants your heart. He wants your trust in what he did. Not only are your sins forgiven, but God the Father looks at you and he, he declares you just to be just as righteous as his son. So you see the perfect record that Jesus earned gets applied to your bad record. And your bad record gets put on him. And that's what happens spiritually in this, when you put your faith in Christ, that's what happens. So if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you trust in Jesus. Jesus. 